0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning as the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwash minds Welcome to the Anarchist Wool This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist Woolless This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week. Yes, it's 2022. Happy whatever. 2022 we're here. Now look, this is the first week of the year. I'm actually not here. This program is pre-recorded. And I do this every year because I'm really interested in in getting people organised, in celebrating the and remembering and honouring the First Nation freedom fighters who fought tooth and nail against colonisation, people that have been written out of the history books in this country. And on the 25th of January every year, we hold the Tanaminawe Mubohina Commemoration at the Tanaminawe Mubohina Monument, one of the first monuments to the frontier wars that were conducted in this country when Tanaminuay and Mulbohina, two men from Tasmania, were hung in Melbourne for the heinous crime of resisting white colonisation. So I welcome you to come along to the Tanaminuay and Mulbohina commemoration at midday at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street opposite the old Melbourne jail. In Melbourne, it's a family-friendly affair. Bring your kids and after an hour's speeches, we move along to the Queen Victoria markets where we pay our respects to, the, to these men at the spot we think they may be buried. So I'm going to go through this saga once again, and I've done this for the last few years because I think it's a good way to open up the year because what it does is it highlights that this country has a long, long continuous history over 60,000 years. Now, normally I run out of time, but we'll see if we can finish it this week. Next week, obviously, we'll be going back to the old boring analysis of what's going on and me pleading with you to join various groups and various activities. The Tanaminaway and Mubohina Saga, what is in a name? Tanaminaway, the son of Kihi. Boy Hina was born on Robbins Island in Tasmania in 1812. He was also known as Peevee, Napoleon, Jack of Cape Grim and Tanapavaway. When he was born, European sealers had been hunting elephant seals and kangaroos on Robbins Islands in northwest Tasmania for the last eight years. By the time he had turned 13, nearly all the elephant seals and kangaroos on the island had been wiped out. One year later, the Tasmanian Land Company moved onto the North West Tribes Land, establishing sheep stations at Circular Head and Cape Grim. Interestingly, when I went to Tasmania in 2019, I wanted to visit this site, but I wasn't able to because the Tasmanian Land Company still owns that site and they refuse permission for people to visit the site where the Cape Grim massacre occurred. On the twenty seventh of november eighteen twenty seven, an Aboriginal came across sheep and several shepherds at Cape Grimm. The meeting ended in disaster for the Northwest tribes, when one Aboriginal man was shot dead and one shepherd was wounded in the scuffle that developed when the shepherds attempted to entice the Aboriginal women into their huts. A few days later the Aborigines drove a mob of sheep to their deaths over the cliffs at Victory Hill. Six weeks later, the shepherds ambushed a group of Aborigines, mutton-burning, killing 30 men and women and children. They threw their bodies over the same cliffs, giving Cape Grim its name. And as I said before, Cape Grim is still the property of the Tasmanian Land Company, Two hundred over 200 years later. The Northwest tribes continue to suffer at the hands of the sealers and shepherds. Aboriginal men were shot on sight. Women were kidnapped and taken to the sealess camps on Kangaroo Island in southern Victoria where they were forced into sexual servitude. Within three years of white colonisation, only 60 of the 500 members of the North West tribe had survived the onslaught. In June 1830, George Augustus Robinson, the Chief Protector of Aborigines in Tasmania, reached North West Tasmania. He was attempting to round up the remnants of the three tribes of Tasmania and resettle them on an island off the north coast to prevent them from being exterminated. The only Aborigines he, in northwest Tasmania he came into contact with were six abducted m- women and one abducted man, an 18-year-old, who had been named Jack of Cape Grim. He, failed. he forced the sealers to give up the northwest tribe tribal Aborigines by threatening to prosecute them for shooting their husbands. Robinson persuaded the Aborigines to come with him, promising they would be able to return to their tribal lands. Tanaminawe escaped from Robinson a few months after his initial capture because he realised that Robinson had no intention of returning him to Robins Island. He was recaptured by Robertson soon after and became part of the group that accompanied Robertson in the search for the Big River people between October 1830 to January 1831. Tuna developed a long and complex relationship with Robertson and in October 1835 he accompanied him to Flinders Island. Robertson held Tuna in high regard and spoke of him as as an exceedingly willing and industrious young man who was stout and well made of good temper and performed his work equal to any white man. Malboy Hina. Robert Smallboy, Jemmy, Timmy, Tinny, Jimmy, Robert of Ben Lomond and Bob were some of the European names Mulbohina was known as. Morbohina came from one of the islands that had that had lived, sorry, Mobuhina came from one of the inland tribes that had lived on the Ben Laman Highlands. He came into contact with Robertson as a relatively young man and in early 1830 accompanied him, his party of white assistants and the five survivors of the Bruni Island people, Waraday, his two sons Peter and Davy Bruni and two young girls Dre and Pagalay, on the difficult journey along the West Coast to help persuade the West Coast guerrilla bands to lay down their arms and move to Flinders Island. Morboyina was also part of Governor Arthur's infamous Black Line campaign that was conducted later that year to drive Tasmanian Aborigines away from the settled areas. Morboyina joined the dynamic leader of the Stony Creek tribe, Kanahur Umara and Tuna in October 1831 to find the big river tribe and force them to join Robertson's group. In 1832, Morbohina accompanied Robertson on his second foray down the west coast. In 1835, Robertson boasted the entire Tasmanian Aboriginal population had been removed to Flinders Island. He received a reward of a £1,000, an extraordinary sum, obviously in 1835, for for his service to the government. The 33-year war between the European colonisers and the Tasmanian Aborigines was finally over. Over 10,000 Aborigines had lived in Tasmania when Europeans first colonised Tasmania in 1803. 33 years later, less than 300 had survived the Holocaust. Three quarters of that 350 who were transferred to Flinders Island died within two years. Only 89 Tasmanian Aborigines were left when Robertson decided to offer his services to the New South Wales Government. The Tasmanian Government, keen to see the back of the last of the Tasmanians, offered to bankroll his generous offer as long as he was allowed to take all the Tasmanian Aborigines that had survived the European Holocaust to the mainland. Move them out! George Augustus Robertson had big plans for himself and his Aborigines. He never had any intention of returning the survivors of the three year Holocaust back to their tribal lands. Robinson wanted to use the, his domesticated Aborigines to civilize the mainland blacks. Even before John Batman set up his illegal settlement at Port Phillip Bay, the governor of Van, Diemen, Van Diemen's Land, Sir George Arthur, wrote on the 27th of September 1835 to the Colonial Office in England, informing them that George Robinson was willing to take his Aborigines from Flinders Island to the newly established settlement at Portland Bay on the Australian mainland to open a friendly communication with the natives there. The Tasmanian authorities, keen to deport the last of the Tasmanian Aborigines, even offered to pay for their maintenance in New Holland. The New South Wales authorities strongly opposed the deportation of the Tasmanian Aborigines to the Australian mainland, although the British Colonial Office was in favour of the move. Governor Arthur highlighted that the deportation of the last surviving Tasmanian Aborigines to Flinders Island had greatly increased the value of Crown land in Tasmania and he believed Robinson could, could using the same tactics he used in Tasmania, do the same to the value of Crown land on the mainland. Whoopie doo The move. Sir George Gipps, the Governor of New South Wales, made it clear the colonial office in England that he did not support Robinson's plan to bring across the Tasmanian Aborigines to Port Phillip. He only allowed Robinson to bring one family with him to act as his personal attendants. Robinson, full of his own self-importance, brought 16 of the surviving 89 Tasmanian Aborigines with him to Port Phillip. Governor Gipps informed Robinson that the New South Wales government would only provide rations for a family of four. Robinson and the 16 Aborigines from Flinders Island arrived at Port Phillip in January 1839. He intended to use the Tasmanian Aborigines as mediators and educators. Even a man as hard as Robinson was shocked by the disease, destitution, and wretchedness displayed by the Port Phillip Aborigines who were living on the outskirts of Melbourne. Robinson wanted Victorian Aborigines to be able to continue to live on the government-owned remnants of land in districts they had traditionally lived on. The Chief Protector introduced the Tasmanian Aborigines to the Yarra Tribes almost as soon as he arrived. He noted in his diary, Their reception was of the utmost friendly character. Assistant Protectors Deployed. George Augustus Robertson had four assistant protectors to help him ameliorate the lot of local tribes in the face of introduced disease, the ravages of alcohol and tribal warfare, interracial massacres and poisoning. Robinson's words, not mine. The chief protector of Aborigines was expected to do his job despite overt hostility from white settlers and the press and very little financial support from the Sydney Treasury. When Robertson arrived, With 16 Aborigines from Finder's Island, no government supplies were allocated for the Aborigines. Some months after their arrival, Superintendent Latrobe provided rations for four of them. The Tasmanians' Aborigines were expected to look after themselves. Robertson's four assistants had been appointed by the British Colonial Office. None had been to Australia before. Charles Dredge, Edward Parker, and William Thomas were Methodist school teachers. The fourth assistant, Charles Sievright, was a former military officer who had been forced to sell his military office to pay off his gambling debts. On the 26th of March 1839, after the new assistant protectors had familiarised themselves with their positions, they were allocated areas of responsibility by Robinson. Dredge was sent to northeast Victoria, Park to the northwest, Steve Wright to the western districts, and Thomas was responsible for Melbourne and Western Port. Steve Wright was shocked to find that his first journey to the western districts, two stations he visited had Aboriginal skulls placed over their doors as a warning to any Aborigines that came to the station. Robinson was more interested in creating an empire for himself than taking any interest in the plight of the Aborigines he was employed to protect. Faced with hundreds of Aborigines camped around Melbourne, many of them dying from typhus fever, dysentery, syphilis, pneumonia, the cold and famine, Robinson lost interest in the plight of the 16 Aborigines he brought across with him from Flingers Island. Some were loaned out to work for Robinson's sons, others were expected to look after themselves. On the 2nd of October 1840, the New South Wales Government released Robinson from any responsibility for the Tasmanian Aborigines he had brought to Tasmania. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. The Van Diemen's land Aborigines were of little use to the Chief Protector Robinson. Morbohina and Walter Arthur were sent to assist white explorers trek to South Australia. Woorodai and a few of the older men were sent to work on Robinson's son's properties. He found the women hard to handle. They absconded on a number of occasions and had to be recaptured by Robinson. In August 1840, Superintendent Latrobe, concerned about Robinson's capacity to deal with the local Aborigines, asked the New South Wales Governor to relieve him of responsibility for the Van Diemen land natives. He was officially relieved of any responsibility for their care on the 2nd of October 1814. Left to their own devices, they tended to gravitate to the Western Port region, where Thomas, the assistant protector for the Melbourne region, had been sent to set up a blacks' camp to distribute rations to encourage the hundreds of blacks that were camped around the settlement in Melbourne to move away from Melbourne. It is known that Isaac, one of the sixteen, Van Diemen's Land Blacks was in early 1841 going round the Westernport region telling the settlers to arm themselves as five black fellows were coming down to cause mischief. On the pretense that they were going to join Thomas's camp, Tundaminaway, Morbohina, Putirana, Thraganini and Planabina, five of the original party of 16, vanished into the Western Port bush by August 1841. Planovina was Tanaminawai's wife. Morbohina was involved in a relationship with Tragonini. William Thomas, the assistant protector's oldest son, wrote in his private journal. He, Jack of Cape Grimm, talked about what they had suffered at the hands of the white man, how many of their tribe had been slain, how they had been hunted down in Tasmania. Now was a time for revenge. They were not cooped up in an island, Flinders. They had unlimited bush to roam over at their will. This little band of two men and three women were familiar with the white man's ways. They knew how to use firearms. They knew how to survive in the bush. It was six years since Melbourne was formed. Over 8,000 whites lived in the new town. The local Aborigines had to a large degree been subdued and posed little threat to the settlers in Melbourne. In October 1841, fear... And trepidation swept through Melbourne town as the exploits of the Tasmanian blacks became known. Many of the settlers had come to Melbourne from Tasmania. They were aghast. Their old foes, the Tasmanian Aborigines, were, were who were only defeated after a thirty-year brutal and bitter struggle. When Aborigines were legally shot on sight, were mounting a determined resistance to white settlement on the outskirts of Melbourne in Dandenong and the Western Port region. Yes. Interesting. From little things, big things grow. In 1840, the Dandenongs in the Western Port region were dense bush. The stations set up by the squatters were established in clearings they had hacked from the scrub. The Tasmanian Aborigines began their campaign in the Dandenong region. They robbed Mr. Horseful, a squatter living in the Dandenongs, of his fowling piece. Walking up to 30 miles a day to evade capture, they robbed a number of other stations. They mainly stole firearms, sugar, flour and tea. The firearms they collected were much more than they could use themselves. Considering they were trying to move quickly through the bush to evade capture, it is highly likely they were collecting firearms to distribute to the local Aborigines. It was recorded that their first strike against the squatters was conducted with the help of local Aborigines. The Tasmanian Aborigines raided the hut of Mr Watson, the overseer of a small, open-cut cliff-face mine at Cape Patterson that had been established to provide coal for Melbourne. Following the normal practice, they spared the women in the hut, ordering them into the bush, stole guns and ammunition and then set fire to the hut, ensuring that it couldn't be used by the settlers in the future. One of the few occasions when they didn't get away without exchanging shots the hut's overseer and his son-in-law, Walter Inman, began shooting at the party. The Aborigines fired back, wounding Walter in the leg. Walter Inman and Mr Watson made their way to a squatter station for assistance. A party of seven whalers who were walking along the beach from their camp at Ladies' Bay came across the deserted mining settlement soon after shots were exchanged. Seeing some people a few hundred metres away in the bush, who they fought were the miners, Two of the whalers, William Cook and Yankee, went into the bush to investigate. Within five minutes of them leaving, two shots rang out. out All-out warfare. The Tasmanian Aborigines set up an ambush for Mr Watson and his son-in-law, William Inman. The two whalers, William Cook and Yankee, stumbled into the ambush. They had been prepared for Watson and Inman. Cook dropped dead as a result of a gunshot wound through the ear. Yankee, shot in the side, was killed by a number of blows to the head. Samuel Evans, one of the whalers who was concerned about the missing men, organised the rest of the party to look for them. They walked up the path and Watson and him, who, concerned about the approaching men, shot over their heads. One of the whalers who continued the search for the men stumbled across their bodies on the beach. The whalers and miners knew the party of Aborigines who killed the whalers on a nearby hill, saw the party of Aborigines. they chased them, but soon lost sight of them. They returned, burying the bodies near the mouth of the Plowlet River. Superintendent Latrobe had been notified two days earlier, the 4th of October 1841, that a party of Aborigines had robbed Mossy's Station at Westernport. La Trobe decided that s- that same night to send troops to deal with the situation. Mr. Powlett, the Commissioner of Crown Lands, who came to Westernport to sell off the Aborigines' land to the squatters, and two police joined Lieutenant Samuel Rawson, on the- of the 28th Regiment, who had been sent to Westernport in early October to protect the squatters from Aboriginal attack. On the 10th of October, 1841, four days after the killing of Yankee and Cook. Rawson and Powlett were notified about their deaths. They left an open boat, hoping to quickly find the Tasmanian Aborigines. By this time, 14 armed men were involved in the hunt for the Aborigines. After a fruitless day of searching, they decided to return to Melbourne to find Aboriginal trackers to help them in their hunt. On their way back, they called in to see Mr Westaway and his labourers, who told them they had been shot at during the night. The Tasmanians had stolen guns and ammunition and £22 in banknotes. Tandeminaway, hoping to drive Westaway's workers from Westernport, burnt the notes, realising the timber cutters would leave their employer if he could not pay them. It took Rawson and Powlett five days by boat to get back to Melbourne. They called in at all the squatter camps they came across, raising the alarm about the Tasmanian Aborigines. On the 29th of October 1841 almost a month after the first raids had been started. The Port Phillip Herald carried the first report about the raids across Dandenong and Western Port that were being conducted by the heavily armed Aborigines. Rawson and Powlett arrived in Dandenong on the 29th of October to meet up with a party of six policemen, six black trackers, Mr Thomas, the Aboriginal protector for the Melbourne area, a cart, a tent and a few squatters. The Tasmanian Aborigines had travelled from Pate, Cape Patterson back to Dandenong on the same day the search party arrived to steal more guns, ammunition and supplies from the squatters on the 30th of October 1841 the Aborigines laid down the gauntlet to the pursuing party leaving messages at a station they would not be taken alive and would fight to the last man and woman by now the police party had swirled to 18 men on horseback and 6 on foot Fun and games. Powell and his party, guided by the black black by the black trackers, soon came across the Tasmanian Aborigines' footprints. The Aborigines had robbed a station on their way to Westernport stealing two guns, pistols, and eight canisters of powder under the nose of the posse. The following day, the party hunting the Tasmanians had swelled to twenty-four. Eighteen were mounted on horseback. The Aboriginal Black trackers had been given muskets and pistols when they became increasingly nervous about following fresh tracks into the bush. Hearing two gunshots and seeing people less than 200 yards away, the party rode across what first appeared to be a flat, open piece of land. Within a few minutes, the horses were floundering in a swamp. They were surprised that Tasmania had not taken advantage of their predicament by firing a a few shots into the sinking crowd of horsemen. Mr Hobson... One of the pursuers showed some initiative when he mounted a tree and took a pot shot at somebody he saw hiding in the scrub surrounding the area. The posse demanded the intruders surrender or be shot. Imagine their surprise when one of the local squatters, Mr Anderson, and four of his servants who had been shooting swans came out of the scrub with their hands held above their heads. Anderson and his party joined the posse as Anderson was one of the group which had found the murdered whalers four weeks previously. Somehow, this, this, this disorganized group stumbled across the Tasmanians. They easily outran the, the amount of pursuers by fleeing across a swamp. The Aboriginal black trackers, concerned about their safety, refused to continue the hunt. Powell and Robertson soon realized they could not continue without the help of black trackers. They decided to span the group. Powell returned to Melbourne on the second of November, eighteen forty-one. Rawson decided to stay at his station for a few more days. Becoming increasingly concerned about the Tasmanians' continued presence in the area, he returned to Melbourne on the 8th of November. On the following day, the Port Phillip Herald reported that the Mary, Chase, Powlett, Rawson and their posse were led on by the five Tasmanians. The Aboriginal protector, Thomas, accompanied by three black trackers, continued to search for the Tasmanians. He located their camp near Westernport. Powell and Rawson organized a new hunting party. They met at Danny Nong three days later. Receiving information from Thomas that he located the Tasmanian's camp, they set out to Westernport, adding new people to their posse as they called in at Squatters stations for help. The inability of the military and the police to locate and arrest the Tasmanians had caused consternation in the districts. Many of the stations on the Mornington Peninsula were deserted. Their owners retreated to the relative safety of Melbourne. On the 16th of November, Corporal Jennings and eight soldiers joined the new posse. The following day, nine mounted police, nine soldiers, four Aboriginal black trackers and six, six settlers, all armed to the teeth, made their way to the camp where the Aboriginal protected Thomas and four more black trackers were waiting. End game. The Tasmanian arrived at Anderson Station on the 17th of November 1841. They waited till the men had left and then entered the house. Finding two women and a child in the house, Tandamimwe led them out and stood guard over them while Mubuhina ransacked the house. The Tasmanians took all the weapons they could find and all the supplies they needed. In all the raids they carried out, they never harmed any women or children. The men that were shot in the raids they carried out were usually shot in the heat of battle. They burnt down the houses they raided to drive the squatters back to Melbourne. Although they hoped local Aborigines would be inspired by their example, not one joined their little group. If it wasn't for the assistance of the Aboriginal black trackers who became involved in the chase because they were promised they would receive guns and provisions for their help, it is highly unlikely the Tasmanians... Survivors of bitter and brutal 33-year war against the British in Tasmania would ever have been captured. Ironically, the black trackers received a few trinkets and blankets for their troubles, although they had been allowed to carry guns during the chase. The following day, the Pursuit Party, which had now grown to 29 men on horseback, arrived at Anderson Station. They were confident that with the help of the black trackers they would soon overtake the two men and three women travelling on foot who had caused consternation and panic among the squatters in the Dandenong's Western Port and the Mornington Peninsula. The following day they were camped less than a mile from where the Tasmanians had set up their camp. That evening, William Thomas, the assistant protector, volunteered to negotiate with the Tasmanians. The rest of the party, believing the end of the chase was, nearly, was near, refused Thomas's permission to negotiate. Soldiers, police, squatters and black trackers woke up about 4am on Saturday the 20th of November. They moved out in single file, armed to the teeth, hoping to win the Tasmanians' rebellion by daybreak. They walked about a mile through a lagoon and across sandhills until the Aboriginal trackers pointed out the smoke coming from the Tasmanians' fire that was less than 30 metres away. The party was standing on top of a sandhill, that overlooked the camp that had been set up in the gully below them. They formed a semi-circle. The men less than two metres away from each other had advanced to within two metres of the campfire when all hell broke loose. The Tasmanians' dogs rushed at the posse. The Tasmanians tried to slip into the scrub amid a hail of bullets. Samuel Rawson, believing all the Tasmanians were dead, entered the camp. He found two of the women hiding under blankets. After putting handcuffs on them, he put a gun to their heads and forced them to call out to those in the scrub to surrender. A woman emerged from the scrub covered in blood. She had sustained a superficial wound to her head, the only casualty from the 30 to 40 shots that had been fired at the heads of the sleeping Aborigines. One of the men who tried to escape from the scrub was captured. While The other man, who had made the escape, decided to return when the women who had guns trained on their heads pleaded for him to return. The five freedom fighters were handcuffed and had chains put on their legs. While they quietly awaited their fate, the ravenous soldiers, black trackers, police and squatters made cakes from the 60 pounds of flour and sugar that Tasmanians had with them. The prisoners were marched through the bush and arrived in Melbourne six days later on the 26th of November. They were taken before the police magistrate, Major St John, who took evidence from 12 witnesses. He committed Tanaminua and Mulbohina for the murder of William Cook and Yankee and the three women Putirana, Dragonini, and Panamina as accessories before and after the fact. Judge Willis. The five resistance fighters were put on trial for the murders of the whalers on the 20th of December 1841 before Judge John Walpole Willis, who Willis Street in Richmond is named after. In eighteen forty-one, five years after the establishment of Melbourne, the first Supreme Court was housed in a temporary structure at the corner of King and Burke Streets. Judge Willis arrived at Port Phillip on the ninth of March, eighteen forty-one. Before Willis's arrival, serious offenders who were committed for trial had to be sent with military and police escorts back to Sydney for trial. The expense involved in this undertaking gave Governor Sir George Gipps the excuse he needed to send Judge Willis the most quarrelsome and difficult member of the New South Wales Supreme Court to preside over the newly established Supreme Court at Port Phillip. To say Willis had a colourful past is an understatement. Judge Willis left many bitter memories in his wake. His first appointment to the Court in Upper Canada in 1827 ended when, facing a revolt by the locals, he was removed by the British colonial office. Using his extensive contacts in England, he was able to obtain and hold on to an appointment on the British Guiana Court from 1831, despite being removed from the court in Upper Canada. His attempts to return to the British Guiana Court after 12 months' sick leave in England was bitterly opposed by the shell citizens of the community. Instead, he was sent to sit on the Supreme Court in Sydney in 1837. When he arrived, true to form, he took an immediate dislike to the New South Wales Chief Justice, Sir Justice Dowling. Judge Willis had a habit of sitting in the court when Dowling delivered his judgments, loudly exclaiming, Why does he not get his facts right? And did you hear the like? When the decision was made to open up a Supreme Court at Port Phillip, Governor Gipps took the opportunity to transfer the judge Who some people think cracked to Melbourne. Governor Gibbs was wrong in believing that sending Judge Willis to Melbourne would solve these problems. Arriving in Melbourne, Willis continued his sparring with the New South Wales Supreme Court, making decisions that challenged the legitimacy of British rule in Australia. In September 1841, three months before the trial of five Tasmanian freedom fighters, a local Aborigine called Bonjohn appeared before Judge Willis on a charge of murdering another Aborigine. In 1840, the squatters who had established the settlement at Port Phillip were concerned about the large number of Aborigines who were camping on the Yarra banks. The Aborigines had come to the settlement to receive the rations they had been promised. In October 1840, in a show of force, 200 Aborigines were arrested after a dispute in the camp led to the death of an Aborigine. By the time Bonjon appeared before Judge Willis, the other hundred and ninety nine had escaped. Bonjon's defence counsel made the point that Port Phillip, having become appended to the British Crown by occupancy and no treaty had been and no treaty had been entered into by the natives, they were not subject, nor had they submitted themselves to the British Crown. Judge Willis agreed with the Defence Counsel, citing examples in New Zealand, Ireland, and the East Indies, making the point that Aborigines cannot be considered foreigners in their own lands. He ruled that Aboriginal law had legal force in Australia in matters concerning the relationship between Aborigines. Judge Willis ruled that he did not have the authority to try Bon John for a crime he had committed against another Aborigine and set him free. Judge Willis's decision was overruled by the New South Wales Supreme Court in May 1842. The colonial government in London stepped in when Judge Willis stated, "My opinion of the overrule still stays the same." The law that Judge Willis administered in Port Phillip was based largely on the laws of England. His interpretation of those laws in the Bonjon case was overturned because the decision called into doubt the legality of the British colonization of Australia. Legal Maneuverings Part 1 Judge Willis's magnanimity towards Aborigines did not extend to conflicts between the colonisers and Aborigines. George Bolden squatted an area near the Hopkins River in western district. When an Aboriginal man, woman and child, attempted to cross his property to reach a camp set up by the Aboriginal protector, Charles Seavright for Aborigines in the western district, he attacked them on horseback with whips. Tachkia, the Aboriginal man, acting in self-defence, tried to pull Bolden off his horse. Bolden shot him in the stomach and beat the Aboriginal woman to death. The child escaped to Sivrite's Aboriginal camp. Charles Sivrite, sickened by what had happened, reported the matter to Superintendent Latrobe. Bolden was put on trial, but was acquitted on the direction of Judge Willis. The jury, unhappy with Judge Willis's decision, told Boldham he did not leave the court without a stain on his character. In his reasoning for the acquittal, Judge Willis stated there had been no reservation in the grant lease or licence from government in favour of the originaries. The possessor had also a right to turn off by all lawful means any person, whether white or black, who should trespass on his run. Superintendent Latrobe, shocked at Willis' judgment, asked Governor Gibbs whether the legal principle established for the case was sound. He believed there was a manifest inhumanity in attempting to exclude all Aborigines from the land. Latrobe was concerned that Willis' judgment meant that the squatters would recommence massacring the Aboriginal population. It might induce a return a return to the to the numerous massacres that occurred during this period as the squatters fanned across Victoria. Willis clearly stated that unlike the Bon John case, the court had jurisdiction in matters of aggression between blacks and white. On the 24th of December 1841, the five Van Diemen's Land Aborigines appeared before Judge Willis, a man described by Governor Gibbs in 1843 as an apologist for the cruelest Practices by some of the least respectable of the settlers on the Aborigines. Legal maneuvering. Part two. If the defendants were unable to understand English or had been ignorant of Christian values, there was there is a slight possibility they would have been spared prosecution. Unfortunately, Robinson's civilizing influence and his and his adamant assertions they had knowledge about the principles of religion and knew right from wrong sealed their fate. Judge Willis always believed they were intelligent enough to understand court proceedings and didn't believe the humanity of the law that extended to an idiot or a lunatic extended to the five Aborigines standing trial in his court. In 1841, Aborigines were not equal in the eyes of the law. They could not testify or lay charges in the courts. The only way they could achieve even a modicum of justice was for a white witness to testify on their behalf. Considering the crimes against humanity that were being perpetrated against Aborigines were conducted in an undeclared frontier war, where those squatters doing the killing were the only white witnesses, the ruling against Aboriginal evidence ensured that crimes committed against Aborigines never made it to the claim courts. Five Aborigines were executed in Melbourne for crimes against whites between 1842 and 1848. Only one white man was convicted in court for killing Aborigines during this period and he only received two months' incarceration for the crime. Considering the legal gun was loaded against the Aboriginal defendants because they couldn't call Aboriginal witnesses to speak on their own defence or even allowed to tender an alibi, Redmond Barry, the Defence Counsel for Aboriginals for the Port Phillip Regent, mounted a spirit defence on their behalf. Just in case the name Redmond Barry seems familiar, the young Irish Aboriginal Defence Counsel, the same Redmond Barry, who, as a judge, presided the trials of a number of the Eureka miners charged with high treason in 1855 and sentenced Ned Kelly to hang almost 30 years later in 1880. But that's another story. As a public defender, Redmond Barry canvassed a number of interesting arguments in Judge Willis's court even arguing against the legal validity of the court proceedings. Legal Maneuverings Part 3 Redmond Barry began by arguing the defendants were not naturalised subjects of the Queen and half of the jury should be composed of people not subjects of the Queen. Judge Willis scoffed at this novel idea and refused to grant Barry's request. The Crown Prosecutor faced the dilemma that one of his main witnesses, Samuel Evans, one of the whalers who witnessed the whalers' murders had not turned up for the, to the trial, wanted to drop the charges of murder against the defendants, as the only evidence the prosecution had was the defendants' own confessions. Judge Willis, in no mood to accept this argument, ruled the murder charge would stand because he accepted Tragonini's pre-trial confession, that Tuna Minoway and Bohina were responsible for the murders of the whalers. As the trial progressed, Barry highlighted the evidence was largely circumstantial and the confessions should not be accepted because they were from people in a state of terror. He attempted to win the jury's sympathy by highlighting the, what every settler in the colony knew but refused to acknowledge. We must remember the course of their destruction at first insidious and private, then open and declared, which eventually swept a numerous nation off the face of their native shore and transported the remnant to a foreign to them distant shore. Barry asked the jury how a people treated in this manner could be asked to quietly forget what had happened to them, and he expected not to exact, expect not to exact revenge for their dispossession and misery he was attempting to get the jury to put themselves in the place of the defendants, hoping the very people who had been responsible for their dispossession and murder would be able to identify and sympathize with the Aborigines. As there were no white witnesses to the murder, the prosecution case swung on the confessions of Maubohin and Truganini. Tanaminawe, Putirana and Planabini. made no confessions when captured, and while they were held in custody, Evidence which directly implicated Tragonini in the murder of the Whalers was ignored by the court. The defendant's inability to give evidence or to be cross-examined meant that the evidence given by Powlett, Watson and Robert Robert Robbins, one of the Whaling Party, about Tanamur and admissions had a greater influence on the jury than it should have. The Verdict In his closing address Barry highlighted the circumstantial nature of the evidence and the inappropriate manner by which the confessions were contained he pointed out that not o- not one witness could identify any of the accused Barry argued urged the jury to acquit the defendants of the crimes they were charged with late monday night on the 20th of december 1841 the jury came to the decision in just 30 minutes they found Tunham in a waymore guilty of murder and acquitted Tragonini, Putirana and Planabino of all charges. The jury moved by Barry's arguments recommended mercy for the men on account of general good character and the peculiar circumstances under which they were placed. The next morning, the five were returned to court for sentencing. Judge Willis discharged the free women into Robinson's care and then addressed the accused. By the confessions of Morbohina and the statements of Traganini, there could be no doubt of your guilt. The punishment that awaits you is not one of vengeance but of terror. You will be taken to the place of execution to be hanged by the neck until dead. The newspapers applauded Judge Willis' sentence. The Port Phillip Herald funded against the system of Aboriginal protectors. It seems the broadside that is regularly launched against bleeding hard liberals in the Black Arm Brigade today was exactly the same type of garbage that was peddled in the media in 1841. Referring to the hanging of seven shepherds for the Mile Creek Massacre in New South Wales a, a few years earlier, the Port Phillip Herald pointed out, Whilst the law protects the blacks, the white man's blood must remain unavenged. Not to be outdone, the Port Phillip Gazette highlighted that the case against the five Tasmanian Aborigines showed the Aboriginal peoples ineradicable love of destruction and as a consequence the imperative necessity, necessity of coercion in their management. Carnival time. On the eve of the execution, Mubohina refused his supper. Tanamuwe, on the other hand, ate heartily and smoked his pipe with the utmost tranquillity. The next morning, Tuesday the 25 January 1842, people began arriving at the gallows, trying to find the best spot to view the hangings. At 8am, the prisoners emerged from the eastern watch house, dressed entirely in white, including white calico caps. They were herded into a cart that frankly, much to the spectator's annoyance, had cloth stretched around it to give the condemned men some privacy. Mounted and border police led the car through the city of the Gallows Hill. The Port Phillip Herald reported, An immense crowd between 4,000 and 5,000 people, the greater part of whom were women and children. From the laughing and merry faces which were assembled, the scene resembled more the appearance of the racecourse than a scene of death. The walls and body of the new jail were literally packed with spectators awaiting the awful scene as if it were a bull bait or a prize ring. A quarter of Victoria's white population had come to see the hanging. The detachment of infantry who paraded in their Sunday best tried to keep some order in the crowd. Aborigines had climbed into the surrounding trees to witness the execution. The cart eventually drew up at the gallows. The Port Phillip Gazette reported that the condemned men's arrival was met in explosions of uproarious merriment. Their arrival was followed by a 20-minute farce of prayer reading, which was interrupted with calls to cut it short. By this time, Morboy Heenan had become extremely agitated. His moans, reported the Gazettes, were terrible to hear. Morboy Heenan's feelings broke out in the most heart-rendering groans. The terrified and piteous looks he threw around him pressing against everyone that spoke to him, as if to catch some chance of salvation was terrible to witness. He trembled violently. James Dreds, one of the assistant Aboriginal protectors, wrote in his diary, "'The executioner tied their hands before they went up the ladder and chains hung from their ankles, making it nearly impossible for them. The poor wretches in getting up the ladder deprived the use of their hands, were obliged to cling to the bars with their knees and chins and be partly dragged and be partly pushed up to slaughter. Tandamuwe calmly ascended the flimsy ladder. Morbohina was dragged up the ladder after Tandamuwe reached the scaffold. The crowd seen Morbohina shaking violently and the scaffold went quiet. The executioner fixed the nooses, pulled down their nightcaps over their heads and hurried down the ladder. As the preacher uttered the key words, in the midst of life we are in death, the executioner's assistant pulled the rope. The drop only descended halfway and a terrible scene followed. Thus the two poor wretches got jumbled and twisted and writhed convulsively in a manner that horrified even the most hardened. The executioner and his assistant did not know what to do. A bystander rushed forward and knocked away the obstruction. Tanaminaway died instantly. Morbo Hina's noose had become displaced and he kept struggling for a f- number of minutes before he was strangled to death. The carnival move that had dominated the scene before the execution evaporated. The crowd angrily turned on the executioner who grinned horribly a ghastly smile. The bodies were left on the scaffold for the regulation hour. They were cut down from their nooses, placed in coffins and taken to the cemetery at the now thriving Victoria Markets. On the way to the ceremony, their clothes were removed from their bodies and executioners' perks. The Chief Aboriginal Protector Robinson was waiting for their coffins at the cemetery beside their open graves. John Davis, the executioner, soon found that the New South Wales Government had little interest in honouring the Port Phillips authority to him. He had been promised £10 and a ticket of leave, which enabled a convict to obtain employment locally for his service. After initial refusal, he was only given £5 for his work. He was not granted a ticket of leave until 1 December 1843, almost two years after he had carried out the executions, almost a year after. Lest we forget... Lest we forget. The interpretation of history changes with each generation. The difficulty about interpreting Australia's early colonial history is that only the colonisers left written records about what occurred. These records were incomplete. In many cases, you have to read between the lines to find out what really happened. The story of Tanaminawe, Mulbohina, Putirana, Targanini, and Planabina is a great Australian story that all Australians should be familiar with. It is a love story, a story of survival against all the odds, a story of armed resistance, rebellion, compassion, brutality, and most importantly of all, hope. It's easy to dismiss the group as a bunch of cold-blooded murderers, arsonists and fees, but their behaviour tells another story. The van... Demon's Land Aborigines knew what was in store for the Victorian Aborigines. Survivors of a brutal 33-year war in Tasmania that saw the Aboriginal population reduced from over 10,000 people to a little over 100, they knew how to use firearms and how to survive in the bush. Their struggle was carried out with a great deal of compassion. The Tasmanians believed that by taking up arms against the squatters, they would be able to ignite an Aboriginal revolt that would drive the invaders into the sea. The way they conducted their guerrilla struggle highlights they had motives that went far beyond survival and vengeance. They collected and stockpiled firearms whenever they could. They stockpiled food. They burnt down the houses they raided, driving the squatters in the Port Phillip region back to Melbourne. They they understood the only way to drive the squatters out of the country was by using their own weapons against them. Their struggle was a compassionate struggle. Women and children and many of the squatters were spared. The killing of the two whalers was clearly a cause of mistaken identity as they were believed to be from a party that was chasing the Tasmanians. Those squatters that were wounded were, were injured in the heat of battle and were not killed. The Tasmanians' capture only occurred as a result of the help of local Aborigines. The colonial authorities had a great deal of difficulty finding black trackers as the local Aborigines supported the Tasmanians' war against the squatters. On several occasions, the Tasmanians were helped by local Aborigines and on one occasion, local Aborigines were involved in the attack on a hut. Ironically, the local black trackers, who were lured into the hut with promises of guns and goods, only received a few knick-knacks once the Tasmanians were captured, the story of Tunnaminawe, Moboy Hina, Putirana, Traganini, and Plana Vina is a story of revolt, armed resistance, and survival. It is a story that is as pivotal to the creation of 21st century Australian society as Gallipoli and Kokoda were. To acknowledge Gallipoli and Kokoda and ignore their struggle is a, our loss as a people and a nation. Lastly, I'd like to mention of the original members of the Tanamunumai and Moobohina Commemoration Committee, I'd like to extend my sympathies to those who have died. To Rick Simpson, to Bill French, to his partner, Wendy French, to my late wife, Ellen Jose. That means only two of us from the original committee are left. But that struggle was not in vain. After a 10-year struggle, we forced the Melbourne City Council to build one of the first monuments to the front, the undeclared frontier wars in this country in a major capital city at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street in Melbourne, the Tannaminoe Morbohina Monument. The document I've been reading I wrote in 2018 and is available if you go to the website TUNAMALL, T-U-N-N-E-R-M-A-U-L This is an extraordinary story. We see many stories on celluloid but we never see these type of stories. This is a story of love, hope, survival, resistance. It is part of our DNA as a community. I invite you to join us on the 25th of January, midday, 2022, a few weeks away, at the Mooborhina and Tuna Minoway Monument at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street. At the very spot they were executed, is, now we have a peaceful area covered by Indigenous plants with a monument to these five great Human beings. I encourage you to join us at 12 o'clock. The first hour of the ceremony will be broadcast on Community Radio 3CR from 12 to 1 on Thursday, the 20th of January. After that, we'll be walking as a group silently to what we believe is their last resting place. This campaign is not over. We want to see the bodies of Tundaminawae Mawboahina retrieved and sent back to their lands. And their people in Tasmania So we've set the scene for 2022 It's a scene of struggle It's a scene where we acknowledge the past But more importantly we understand the past And we use the lessons of the past to change the future Welcome to 2022